We're going to begin today by talking about perspective. Perspective. We're going to ask three questions in a row. We're going to start with our first question. So the first question we ask with perspective is this, as we see it on the screen. So our first question is, am I focused on looking good or being part of something that matters? Now, you see a picture here of Horace Grant. Horace Grant had a game in 1993 where we can face this question. Horace Grant was a star player for the Chicago Bulls. He was not Scottie Pippen, and he was not Michael Jordan. He was Horace Grant. He had the coolest glasses of any basketball player we've ever seen, and he put up the following stat line. He went 0 for 5, shot an effective field goal percentage of 0%. He picked up five fouls, and he had multiple turnovers. Now, was that a good game or a bad game? It was an excellent game because that was the game where they won 99-98 over the Phoenix Suns to clench the first three-peat, and that began really the Jordan dynasty because now they won three in a row. Here's our next question. Am I focused on all the temporary things that get me down? We're asking a series of questions about perspective to start. So that was our first one. Here's the second. Am I focused on the temporary things in my life today that get me down? Martin Luther is a pretty famous, important guy. What did he do? Well, he decided that there were some things that were wrong with the church at the time about 500 years ago. And so he wrote a list, and he actually made 95 of them, and he put them on the door of the church, and it changed the world. It began what's called the Protestant Reformation. We are part of that movement. We are a Protestant church out of that tradition. But I love this story that's also told about him. There's our friend right there, because our friend, he didn't just change the world. He also was a pretty gloomy guy. Anybody here gloomy from time to time? You know, Martin Luther had about a five-day period where he was really depressed and sad and really upset. And so after five days on the sixth day, his wife, Katharina, wore a black dress. And he turned to her and he said, oh, are you going for a funeral? And she said, oh, no, Martin, you're acting like God is dead, so I just want to join you in your pity party. <laughs> we can do that in our lives. We're thinking of perspective. We start with this idea, am I focused about me or being something greater? Am I focused on those temporary things? And here's our third question we're going to really look at. Am I focused on me even in my spiritual life? This one's the most personal. My wife and I were driving. We just got back from a week away. We went to the Berkshires. Who loves the Berkshires here? I know we got New Hampshire superfans. Berkshires are great. Uh, we were in South Lee. Beautiful. You should go. Terrific. Okay. So we're driving and we're listening to new worship songs. I love worship music. This is not bashing worship music at all. This is showing us we have to be careful. So I want to give that caveat. I realized that you can play a game. Everybody hold up seven with your hand. Hold up seven. You can do this little litmus test with a worship song, which is really fabulous. In the first seven words of a song, does it use the word I or me? We listened, and we found that nine of ten, you can put your hands down, nine of ten worship songs we were listening to in the first seven, about Jesus, about God, about things that are beyond us, immediately become about me. 
Jesus, I'm so happy. I'm so, which, yes, there's a personal component, but we have to be careful. We have to be careful with our perspective that if my faith just becomes about my experience, what happens? If my experience is bad, I say, Jesus, let me down. If my experience doesn't make sense, and if it's not built on something greater, the gospel message, if it's not built on absolute truth, but my relativistic life, it leads to this problem. I'm calling this sermon, Is God Ever Really Silent? Because when I'm me-focused, God often seems silent. Can we agree? Do we have moments where we say, where's God? You know, I'm doing the right thing. I, me, I, I'm praying. I'm praying with my children. I'm giving to church. I volunteered. I'm, I said yes to leading a home group. Why aren't things better? Because the challenge is, is when I am me-focused, I start to have this perspective that I say, oh, God is silent. God has changed. God is different. And we're going to look at a theological reality that's going to allow us to have a better view. Because today we're going to look all about perspective, and we're going to look at this idea of the sovereignty of God. We've talked about this before, and I really want to be clear on what this means. The sovereignty of God, what is a sovereign? A sovereign is like a king, a ruler. We understand our theologian John Wesley said it like this. He is sovereign Lord of heaven and earth and of every creature which he hath made. You love a good hath in there. That's how you know it's theological, right? As soon as you got a hath or a thou, you're like, all right, I got a theologian. We are good. So when we look, because our problem, right? Our problem is that when I'm me-focused, suddenly I think God is silent. So we have to say, okay, but I understand that's my experience at times. I understand my perspective problems. Okay, but what do I know about God? I know God is sovereign. Now, that's a concept that's hard for us. So in our Wesleyan tradition, our Again, John Wesley, he's our main theologian we look at. What's a theologian? A theologian is a person who allows us to have an understanding of who God is and how we understand and experience God. We throw around things like theological, and you may say, I don't know what that means. There it is. So the theologian gives us kind of the premise and the way we view God. God's sovereign, let's think of it like this. He's like a present, loving parent. He's like someone who really cares, who's really available, and who has authority and control. And so as we look in our lives, we're going to see that God is working in all sorts of different ways. And one of the ways we see that is not just with my experience, because again, what is our problem? When I'm me-focused, God can seem silent. Who's got a Bible? Someone hold up a Bible for me. Bible's super helpful. Why is the Bible helpful? For so many reasons. One of the reasons, Bible is not a fact book, it's a truth book. Also, it's not a self-help book, even though it gives us spiritual direction in our lives. It's not for me to say, oh, I can make myself better by legalistically following Scripture. What can I do with the Bible? One of the things I can do is I can look in there and say, wow, there are wonderful examples of God's sovereignty, of God not being silent 
even in difficult times. And so we're going to be in two books today. We're not going to do one short text. You're like, oh, David, we're going to go for 90 minutes. We're not going to go for 90 minutes. It's okay. We're going to open up to the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and I want to put a graphic on the screen. 1st and 2nd Samuel are in your Old Testament. Open up the Bible. First part is Old Testament. Second part is New Testament. These are going to be early on in the Old Testament, and these show us a time pre-Jesus where you have the nation of Israel, and they are dealing with a king-sized hole. What does that mean? It means they live in a culture where there are a series of tribes following God. They're not exactly like our culture today. We're not going to get into this a ton, but they're a theocracy, not a democracy. So we have to be really careful on overly identifying with this group of people, but keep that in mind. So they're dealing with this king-sized hole. They're saying, hey, every other nation has a king, so I want one. You know, I walk into the cafeteria, I see everybody else with the Dunkaroos, so why don't I have my chocolate Dunkaroos from mom and dad, is what it was like growing up in the 90s. Maybe you grew up in a different area and you didn't have Dunkaroos. But when you had your celery sticks and everybody else had Dunkaroos, you wanted the Dunkaroos and you didn't understand why mom and dad gave me the celery sticks. So I'm looking at the millennials and they're all laughing. Everybody knows the love of Dunkaroos. I mean, those were amazing. That's how they felt about a king. They're like, we don't want to just be tribes following God. We need a king to be like everybody else. So we can look at these two books in four parts. I did alliteration to make it easy. First part is interim. You got this sweet Christian guy, Samuel. Okay? Samuel is a really good guy. He's dedicated to the Lord, but he's not a king. And the people say, hey, hey, Samuel, like, that's great, but we want a king. And he's like, but you should just want God. No, we want a king. So he becomes a bit of an interim in this time between the judges' period and the king's period. And now they find this guy, Saul. Now, Saul looks like a football player. Saul is a big, strong guy, looks brave, even though they find him hiding behind the luggage when it's time to crown him king. But we won't get into that. He looks so, he's like an Adonis. He's just, wow, here I go, I'm in charge. The problem is, is that he's not a king after God's heart. He's kind of a tyrant. So quickly, what we see in the second section of these books of Samuel is this guy is in charge, but it's not going well. Have we ever had a time, maybe on a local level, where we've had someone be a leader and it just didn't go well? That's what they start to feel. And now we got a major, major problem. And they have a Saul issue. They have a tyrant issue, and we see that here. But then, little shepherd boy, he writes a psalm. What psalm does he write? Many of them, but he writes the 23rd Psalm. King David, eventually, but this little shepherd boy David is a boy, a man after God's own heart. He lives with integrity, and eventually he becomes king, and that's how we start the second book of Samuel. David is now on the throne. King Saul is dead. David is actually done right by King Saul. He had two chances to to kill him. He didn't because he's like, I'm not going to kill the king. That's not my thing. We respect and love the king even if he's flawed and a failure and really not a good leader. And so he doesn't. And now David lives with integrity for like 10 chapters. But then what does he do? He has an affair. He sees this beautiful woman bathing on the roof and he decides that he can't just leave life 
alone. What's he going to do? He's going to have an affair. And worse, maybe not worse, but just, well, worse, probably. Worse, not only is he going to have an affair, what's he going to do to her husband? Have him killed. And he's going to do a cover-up. Do things go well? They don't. And everything starts to implode. And for the rest of the book, you see that things implode. And we're going to look at the end of our sermon today, we're going to look at three stories now where we see Samuel or Israel or David saying, hey, life kind of doesn't make sense. I feel like God's silent. And they're going to have to look and they're going to have to see how God is working in these parts. We're going to look at three snapshots because here's our big idea. God is always working and never silent. We're going to see that in this text today. We're going to do three quick stories, one at the very beginning, one where we have during this interim time where Samuel is leading the people, we're going to have one in the middle where things aren't going well with Saul. And then we're going to have one at the end where we have this implosion and literally David's son has named himself king and there's all sorts of a mess they're dealing with. But we can look in 2023 or 2034, or 2072, or 2196, it doesn't matter the year, and we can look and we can say God is always working and never silent, revealed in Scripture, and yes, maybe in my life there's times when I'm me-focused and I miss it and I feel like God is silent, but look in Scripture and see. So let's begin with our first story. This is sometimes God works independently, because here's our question today. Our question of our, our sermon title was this, is God ever really silent? Now, before we look at our points, I, I, want, I want honesty. Who here has ever experienced a moment where they feel like God's silent on them? We won't do a lot of hands, we'll do this. This is something we face. When we think of young people who question and people who are skeptical, one of the big questions is, how could a loving God allow blank to happen? Have we ever heard of this, the problem of evil? My small group has been begging me to talk about the problem of evil, and I promise we'll get to it, friends. I promise we'll do it. Maybe this week, we'll see. They're giving me thumbs up. They really want to talk about it. It's something a lot of us really struggle with. And so we're going to see today three ways that God is always working. Sometimes God works independently. Not all the time. We would love for this to happen more. But here's a story about a thing called a fall of Dagon. Okay, so you got early on, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 5. I'll put the words on the screen in a moment, so we'll actually stay in the fall of Dagon for a second, but we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 5 if you want to open there. Let me give you the, so this is beginning of the book. Samuel is not the king. You've got the Israelites battling with their nemesis. It's a group of people called the Philistines. Who's the most famous Philistine? Really tall. His name is Goliath. Good job. Okay. So you got this back and forth thing. And what happens? The three key leaders of Israel are killed in battle. This guy named Eli and his two sons. And now they take this thing called God's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Who's seen Indiana Jones? Okay, you know what the Ark of the Covenant is if you've seen Indiana Jones. If you haven't, here's what it is. Big gold thing. What we can understand of it is it really is our understanding of a representation of God being physically present with the people. It is stolen and taken to the temple of Dagon. What is Dagon? Dagon kind of looks like, where are my SpongeBob fans at? 
Okay, you know King Neptune in SpongeBob? Dagon kind of looks like that. He's like a fishy mermaid thing with a spear. If you don't know SpongeBob, so he's like a, a, a jacked guy, and then he's got like a mermaid. Oh, he's like in Little Mermaid. What's, uh, what's Little Mermaid's King Triton? He's kind of like that, okay? That's what Dagon looks like. So the Philistines grab the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it in with their God. And that seems like a problem, right? God's now silent. God, how did you allow this to happen? Like, this is your representation of your presence, and now it's with a pagan god in his temple? Okay, let's watch what happens. We'll start at verse 1. After the Philistines captured the ark of God, they took it from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. That's a fun name. I wish our town was Ashdod. Uh, Church of Ashdod. That, that has nothing to do with the sermon. They carried that. We got we to gotta have a little bit of sense of humor with Scripture sometimes. Okay. They carried the ark of God into the temple of Dagon, that big fish guy, and placed it beside the idol of Dagon. What's the idol of Dagon? The big statue. Okay, watch what happens. But when the citizens of Ashdod went in to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. Look at that real quick. So separate from anybody, God literally just worked independently and knocked the statue down, and it's literally humbled and bowed to God. Okay, let's keep going. So they took Dagon and put him in his place again. Watch what happens next. But the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen face down before the Lord, ark of the Lord again. This time, his head and his hands had broken off, and were lying in the doorway, only the trunk of his body was left intact. Why is this a great story? This is a great story because some, and we want more of these. We say there's a problem of evil. I wish evil didn't win. Sometimes good wins. We need to start looking for these. We need to start looking for the times that good does win, and we're going to give God the credit for that. Now, here's the perspective that the people could have had when the ark was taken away. Here's our me perspective, because the me perspective is saying God has gone silent. His presence is now with our enemies. But what does that story tell us? That's the wrong perspective. It's not that God is silent. God is active, always working, and instead, what's a better perspective we can have? God's power is greater than the forces of evil. Now, we don't, we don't see that every single instance, and we want more of this. Can we agree? We want more moments where instead of seeing this awful, horrific thing, where we say, wow, that was amazing, thank you, Jesus, that was awesome. We don't get that every single time. So one of our things we're going to say is we're going to look, and there's sometimes God acts independently, there's going to be other ways God's going to act too. God is never silent. Now, to illustrate this is hard, and here's why it's hard to illustrate Who's ever almost been in an accident, but you didn't hit the car in front of you? That's an illustration, right? Maybe Jesus took the wheel. Maybe you just had the right instincts. I don't know. Can we start giving God the credit? Amen. Who's ever had a coincidence where it just worked out, and instead of things going horribly wrong, things went pretty well, and you were able to help somebody? That was God. Sometimes God just works independently and we can't really explain it. Who has ever had, I know of at least one, a miraculous healing moment in your life where you couldn't explain it medically, it just happened? I know of at least one. Okay, many others. The point is there are some times that God works independently. So here's my question. Please, will we start to give God the credit? 
When that happens, can we stop saying, I don't know, that was a coincidence? What if we just say, instead of explaining it to someone else, anyone else can say that was a coincidence. We'll just think in our head, thank you, God, you're not silent. Can we agree? Let's agree. Okay. So sometimes God does that, but I'm going to be honest. I'm not here to promise you it always happens like that. Here's a more common way God works. Story number two, sometimes God works through believers. Middle now of Samuel. Samuel 16, you've got this king. His name is Saul. Is he a great king? He's not a great king. Why is he not a great king? Because he's a tyrant. The people wanted a king like all the other nations, and they got a king like all the other nations. And now they've got a problem. And they're like, oh, what what happened? I mean, I thought we were going to have a godly king. Well, you didn't really ask for a godly king. You wanted an Adonis king who looked like the man, and he looks like the man, and he taxes you like he thinks he's the man, and he acts like he thinks he's the man, and he takes all the troops from your towns to his castle like he thinks he's the man. So you got exactly what you wanted, and there's a problem now. But sometimes God works through believers. What are the books called? The books of First and Second Samuel. This guy Samuel is now older at this point, and God says, hey, uh, Saul's not going to be king anymore. Samuel's like, oh, that's good news. Who's going to tell them? Oh, you're going to tell them, Samuel. What do you mean I'm going to tell them? He's going to behead me, and there's going to be no more Samuel, and you're still going to have Saul. But look at how God works now. We know the story of King David, but this is even before King David. This is Samuel being willing to let God use him. Look what happens as we go to this first verse. This is God talking to Samuel. You, Samuel, have mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Keep going. But Samuel asked, and this is a question we'd ask, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of the sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. So here, what do we see? You've got a difficult moment where you can look and say, God has gone silent. Show of hands one more time. Who's ever felt like God goes silent on you? We all, most of us have felt this way. There's now a a tyrant, a dictator, as our king. God, we weren't supposed to have this. What's God doing behind the scenes? This faithful guy who loves him, who's a believer, Samuel, is bravely going, and he's going to do God's work, and it's going to be part of the solution. We see that this is happening. Now, this is the easiest one to watch in our life, because sometimes God works through believers. Who has ever had a Christian friend? Right, okay? This is the easiest one. I don't even need to illustrate it, so I'll keep it brief. We had a difficult process the church has had to go through in the last year. It's been difficult. There's no glory in having to go through difficult times. We have to go through difficult times. You know what God did? One of the things during this difficult time, there was a moment where we had to have a community meeting. And I'm not making this number up. Do you know how many pastors God sent from our community to just speak kindly about our church? Not one, not two, not three, 
Seven. Seven pastors. I heard someone say that's a holy number. That is a holy number, if you're, if you're into that. But the reality is, is that sometimes when we feel like life doesn't make sense, when God is silent, we should watch and say, wait, I'm, I'm about me and I'm frustrated. This is hard. But God sent seven pastors. I mean, wow. And we have this in our lives where we look and we say, okay, yes, I understand that life is difficult, but I have a Christian friend who made a difference. Who's ever had a really, really difficult day in your life where a Christian called you up randomly on the phone? Randomly. Who's ever had a really difficult day where someone, you're not even a prey in the supermarket person, but someone prayed over you in a supermarket? Has anyone ever had that? My friends, that was God, okay? That was God working through the person. Because in this, what's the wrong perspective? The me perspective looks like this. When I'm dealing with a tyrant or I'm dealing with something that's a broken situation, have we had broken situations in our lives that we've dealt with? I say, oh, God has gone silent and life is now messed up beyond repair. But I'd say the most common way God seems to anecdotally work is through believers, through Christians. And so here's a better perspective. God works through believers to redeem broken things. If you were randomly prayed over in the supermarket, that wasn't random. We said like that moment where you swerved and didn't get into the car accident, that wasn't random. Your Christian friend who just called you out of the blue, hey, I care about you, on the perfect day, and they would have had no way of knowing, that's not random. Can we agree that we're going to start giving God the credit for that? Instead of saying, me focused, oh, God's silent. Say, wow, my Christian friend reached out to me random. I had a really bad day recently. I don't even remember why. And my friend from Ohio really randomly texted me two lines. We had a prayer meeting last night, and I thought of you and I prayed for you. Hope you're having a good day. Hugely different, super helpful. Maybe you should send a text to somebody right now who's a friend of yours who needs a little encouragement. Be that person. Be that Samuel. Samuel goes and deals with the issue of they have a tyrant king, and he goes, even though there's all sorts of reasons not, God works through him. Sometimes we can do that brave thing of just sending that text to that person and saying, hey, I care about you. A major way God works is through Christians. And there's one more. And this is probably in the middle. You know, we often want God to work independently, but usually God tends to work through Christians. But here's the third way. Sometimes God works through unlikely allies. My favorite hidden gem story in the entire Bible, if you've known me, you know that this is a story I love to bring up. Ittai the Gittite. Who's ever walked into the supermarket and seen their friend Ittai? Anybody have a friend named Ittai? Anybody want to name their baby Ittai? I know we're going to have, I think, a Mitchell baby soon. We want to have uh, baby Ittai Mitchell. What do we think? I think it's a great idea. I love the name Ittai. Okay, he's, Billy's going to be like, what are you doing, David? Okay, I love you, Billy. You guys are terrific. So now, Ittai is not someone we've run into. I don't think he's even in here right now, so don't tell him. Okay, uh, don't tell him. Okay, here's the thing. Sometimes God works through unlikely allies. Sometimes you have someone who it doesn't even make sense that God would use, and God uses that person. Remember how we talked about our theological idea of the sovereignty of God? 
The sovereignty of God means God can use blank person who's messed up and flawed and maybe even doesn't love or know Jesus, and God can still, is sovereignly powerful enough to use that person. We're going to see this in this final part of our survey of 1 and 2 Samuel, Israel's king-sized hole. We're going to see there's a civil war now. David has made a mess of his life. He was supposed to be a king with integrity. Did he live with integrity? No, he's, he's flawed and human. He had an affair, did a murder, covered it up. And now it led to this implosion. There's these awful acts that happen. And eventually, his son has said, hey, I'm, look at me. I'm not the captain now. I'm the king now. And so now we have King Absalom. And so David, instead of having a civil war directly in the city, has realized that we gotta, we got to take a strategic retreat and figure this out. And God's going to fix the situation or not. It'll say that later in the text. He's going to cry at at the Mount of Olives, and he's going to say, basically, God, I know you're either going to, you're going to let this be, be how it is, or you're going to redeem it, but I'm going to trust you on that. But before we get there, look what happens. Let's start here. The king, King David, and all his people set out on foot. Where'd they sit out on foot from? They're from Jerusalem. They're leaving because Absalom, his son, is going to come declare himself king, and David realizes we shouldn't have fighting in the city to let all the king's men move past him to lead the way. There were 600 men from Gath who had come with David along with the king's bodyguard. Gath is an area, uh, oh, look at this, the Philistines, okay? Remember those nemesis of Philistines? Watch this, God's going to use a Philistine. You know the good Samaritan, the unlikely person from Samaria? We've heard of that. God in the Old Testament didn't use a Samaritan here. He used someone from Gath. Same kind of idea, the nemesis. Watch this. Then the king turned and said to Ittai, a leader of the men from Gath, why are you coming with us? Go on back to King Absalom, for you're a guest in Israel, a foreigner in exile. You arrived only recently, and, and should I force you today to wander with us? I, I don't even know where we will go. Go on back, take your kinsmen with you, and may the Lord show you his unfailing love and faithfulness. But Ittai... By the way, if you name your, um, your child Ittai, I will, I don't even know what I'll do. It'll be amazing. But Ittai said to the king, I vow by the Lord and by your own life that I will go wherever my Lord the king goes, no matter what happens, whether it means life or death. Pause. Is Ittai part of the Israelites? He's not. Does he necessarily serve God? He doesn't. He's an unlikely friend. God uses Blank person, Ittai, who you would say he has no business being an ally. Everybody else has turned away. Why would, why would Ittai, he's, he's a mercenary. He should go to Absalom so that his men and his children can be fed and they're going to have a better life that way. It makes more strategic sense. But God says, hey, I'm going to use Ittai. And so what happens here? David replied, all right, then come with us. So Ittai and all his men and their families went along. Sometimes God works through unlikely allies. David could approach the situation with the following perspective. Me. What could he have said? God's, God's gone silent and everything's now wrong. My son, because of my mess, is now in my cycle of disobedience and, and now everything's wrong and it, it can never be fixed and 
God's silent and I'm so upset and this is horrible and this is unredeemable and it's beyond repair, but what is the better perspective? In our darkest moments, God sends unlikely friends like Ittai. Who's ever had an unlikely friend? I was a bad music student. I eventually got kicked out of music school. Well, I sort of dropped out, sort of got kicked out. Um, if they like don't ask you back and they say they're going to they're going to cut your scholarship in half. Is that getting kicked out? Or is that, I don't know what that is. But here's the thing. In college, I was in music school. And I had this, I was pretty musical. I just had this little problem. I didn't practice. Okay? So if you're a musician, you know, um, is that helpful? Not necessarily helpful. So I had a voice teacher. His name was Mr. Price. And Mr. Price was not the biggest fan of David. Why was he not the biggest fan of David? Because David never practiced. So he really was kind of not wanting David to continue to be his music student. And he was very frustrated with me. And I'd show up for lessons and I could tell it was the worst 45 minutes of his week. Every time he had to see me because he was like, great. Uh, David was supposed to sing in German, but he didn't learn his German, so I'm letting him sing in English and he doesn't know his English either. And I, I, what am I supposed to do? Have you go la, la, la? And he was frustrated with me. But like all college students, our first semester away, especially if it's away from home at 18, it's a very lonely time. Can we agree? That's something that happens. I was in a really dark place. I hadn't really told anyone I was in a dark place, but I was in a really dark place. And my music teacher hated me, I thought. But then I walked in one day in a really dark, really sad, depressed, upset place. And he said, hey, David, you know, I feel like I just haven't really gotten to know you. Why don't you, why don't, instead of having a voice lesson today, why don't you just tell me about yourself and let's just talk. You seem like things aren't great. I want to know more about you. I care about you. And for 45 minutes, he was kind and talked to me, and it made a big difference in my life. And did I learn any sort of pedagogy from Mr. Price? I didn't. But I have this moment where I remember him being the Ittai to me, the unlikely friend in a difficult situation. And it doesn't mean that he then was a different person. He still kicked me out of his voice studio, okay? <laughs> Mr. Price still, at the end of the semester, I was not his voice student anymore, but God used him sovereignly in that moment. So here's my question for you. Are you willing to see that there are people in your life, a bad boss, don't raise your hand. Who's got a bad boss? Don't raise your hand. God can use your bad boss. Who's a boss and has a bad subordinate? Don't put your hand up. God can use your bad subordinate. God can also use you as the unlikely friend. God can, can take you and you can want to have your subordinate fired. Maybe that's your desire. However, that subordinate is still a complicated human with needs who's a kind, caring person in some situations, and maybe that person just really needs you to be the unlikely friend. And you just to stop and to say, hey, you know, I feel like I haven't gotten to know you. Let's just talk a little bit. Doesn't necessarily need to, you might still kick them out of your music studio, but being the kind person, in our darkest moments, God sends unlikely friends. Sometimes we get them, sometimes we are them. And I want to kind of sum this all up with going to the idea of the rocking chair. So Corey Ten Boom is a wonderful hero of the faith 
Where are my Corey Ten Boom super fans at? The hiding place? A lot of people love Corey Ten Boom. Here's the 10 second version. It'll be longer than 10 seconds, but not much. Corey Ten Boom was the family, they were all watchmakers. Christian family living in the time of World War II during the Holocaust. They were Jewish people, they were in Europe. And they had an opportunity to hide Jewish people in their house. There were wonderful Christians, and then Corey was kind of this skeptic, okay? That's all we need to know. She was much more skeptical than everybody else. Crusty, hard-hearted, more than everybody else. But God worked in a time where when we think of silent moments, the Holocaust is one of the times we talk about, oh, that seems like a silent moment. And when we're me-centered, and that's our perspective, maybe that's the case. But look what happened. Corey Tenboom not only survived, but was a wonderful Christian who had this message of hope. And this, she had this whole idea that there's no pit so deep and dark that God's love cannot shine in it. This is a wonderful idea. But here's what I want to focus on, not that famous quote, this other quote. Here's what she said. Worry is like a rocking chair. Who has a rocking chair in your house? Okay, I want you to sit in your rocking chair this afternoon and think about this. When I worry, God's silent. Oh, God's silent. I'm so upset. Worry is like a rocking chair. It lies to us. How does it lie to us? It keeps us moving, but it doesn't get us anywhere. If we rock in the rocking chair, we're going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Are we getting somewhere? We're not. We're upset. I have a family member a couple generations back who was known for sitting in her rocking chair, and every time she sat down, people in the house knew, "Uh uh-oh, she's worrying now. Get out of the rocking chair. Sometimes we just need to get out of the rocking chair and say, I acknowledge that God is never silent. God is always working. God redeems situations. God sometimes works independently, sometimes works through believers, and sometimes works through unlikely places. Instead of saying worry is like a rocking chair and letting that be our truth, look at this. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So here's our, we invite the elders to come forward for prayer. If you're dealing, and I'm going to keep it simple, I'm not going to give a long explanation, but I'm going to ask you to do an uncomfortable thing today if you're willing. If you're wondering, is God silent? If you're feeling like God is silent, I want you to come down for prayer. I want us to pray for you. If you are struggling with God seeming silent today, and you're in that rocking chair of worry, and you're going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it feels like you're moving and you're not getting anywhere, let's let today be the day we just say, okay, I don't want to keep rocking anymore. God, you're not silent. You're always working. You're active. I trust you. So we're going to stand and sing this song about building our life on Jesus, and I invite you, come forward. Let's pray with you. Let's get the ball rolling.